Revelation 21, the verses 1 through 8. We'll quote that text extensively throughout the sermon. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes Christians are called pilgrims. Pilgrims are are people who are on a journey to a, a very special place. Christians are pilgrims who are making their way to the promised land. We'll sing that later in the service in hymn 71, the stanza 2, which we'll sing in connection with Tyson Versteg's profession of faith. That hope must soften all our sorrow. Come, fellow pilgrims, heads then high. For those who bide salvation's moral, the hills are level, seas are dry. O blessedness above all measure, O joy when once all grief is banned, there is our heart, there is our treasure when we are in the promised land. It's a beautiful image of a Christian on a pilgrimage through this broken world, this vanity of vanities, with head held high because he or she knows that we're headed to a a beautiful, amazing world and life where God will wipe the tears from our eyes. There are pilgrims looking to Jordan to cross over. Now, you want to be careful with that image that we don't say, well, if you're a pilgrim, you kind of ignore the world. You're just getting through as fast as you can. Promised land is everything. But God put us here. You know, this is, where, this is where we grow up. This is where we get married and have families, a communion of saints, the school. We get involved in politics. This is our Father's world, and we're active in it. But as a Christian, if you have the balance right, if you know where you're going, if you know what's going to happen when Christ returns, it strengthens us when we go through trials and tribulations. It strengthens us when we go through the grief and the pain and the dirt that life can throw us. We can get through it because we know what lies in store. Certainly, John's readers back in those days would have been deeply touched by this message. They were severely persecuted. A lot of people lost their jobs because they were Christians. Weren't even able to go in the stores to, to buy and, and sell, and it wouldn't be long before they would be gathered up and, and, and thrown before the lions and torn to pieces. And as they were doing that, experiencing that, they were singing psalms and hymns. As the lions were tearing them apart, they sang psalms and hymns because they understood that soon when they were dead, Jesus Christ would greet them, take them to heaven, and wipe away the tears from their eyes. They understood that life in here, here in this world, it's, it's all under God's control. It's, it's his plan. And when we go through difficult times, our God is beside us. He grieves with us. But he also says, you are more than conquerors. I bring you to a better place, an eternal place. And it will be well with you. And that's our comfort too, brothers and sisters. We've come to the end of 2023, about to enter a new year. The pilgrimage continues. We are in a world where there's a lot of hurt and brokenness, but we know 
It is well. It is well with my soul. Always in the hands of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one day he will wipe away the tears from our eyes. We summarize our text in this way. God announces to pilgrims that he makes all things new. We'll see two things. What is new in the future and what is new here and now. What we should keep in mind as we're looking at our text is that in the previous chapter, we have the last judgment. And Satan and all who follow him are thrown into the lake of fire. That's hell. Now, after that final judgment, John has a vision of what will follow. And in that vision, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. One of the striking things about this sentence is the word new. New heaven, new earth. We also read about the new Jerusalem. And in verse 5, God says, I make all things new. Now, you might not know this. I'd like to share it with you. But in Greek, we have two words for new. One is neos and the other is kainos. Neos means new in the sense that never was there before. In Genesis 1, when God created the heavens and the earth, he said, let there be light. That was all new. It was never there before. But that's not the word that's used in our text. We have instead the word kainos, which means new, not in the sense it was never there before. It was there before, but it's improved. It's made better. It is amazing. It's breathtaking. You know, when when our Lord Jesus Christ returns and we enter a paradise restored, it's not going to be unrecognizable. Still the earth. Walk on it, pick up some dirt, throw it in the air if you want. The skies above us, maybe clouds, who, who knows. It's a recognizable world, but it will be free from sin and and evil and death and every horrible thing. And that's what we're going to look at in in our text. So John starts off by saying, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. To understand what is meant by heaven and earth, you only have to go back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So the heaven and the earth... It's the world in which we live. The earth, walk on it. Heaven, look up there. This is the sky, sun, moon, and stars, puffy clouds, maybe an airplane even. It's it's our world. But John says it's going to be a, a new heaven and a new earth made better. Now, the question we have is, does it need to be made better? Well, duh, yeah. You know, Paul writes about our world in in Romans 8 when he says, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. This earth is filled with disease and violence and wars and terrorism. So much evil, so much hurt, and so much death. And the sky, the beautiful sky that God created, It's got all kinds of junk floating around it. Asteroids come down and smash on the earth, maybe killing people. And the sun, the sun cannot give you sunstroke 
or it can, it can give you radiation that will give you skin cancer. This is not the world that God had made. He's going to make it better. In fact, brothers and sisters, in the words of, of 2 Peter 3, we, we, we read that, that this, this whole earth will be burnt with a purifying fire. Now, admittedly, 2 Peter 3 is difficult. But what Peter says is the earth, as we know, it doesn't disappear. It's going to be cleansed with a purifying fire. So when Jesus Christ returns, he will come with a purifying fire. It'll remove all traces of pollution. You won't find any hospitals or prisons or walls. There'll be no wars. There'll be no Israeli-Hamas conflict or Ukraine and Russia. There will be no graveyards. It'll all be made pure and beautiful as God originally intended it. And that's confirmed when, when, we, when we also read that the sea was no more. I understand that some people think that literally there'll be no oceans or seas in the new heaven and the new earth. I find that very difficult to imagine because the sea is part of God's original creation. The marine world is stunning. Who, who doesn't long to see whales surfacing in the ocean or dolphins jumping in a row? It's a beautiful world. But we should understand that in the book of Revelation, the sea is symbolic for evil and death. In Revelation 13, we read that the beast arises from the sea. The sea becomes the graveyard for the dead. And in chapter 18, on the sea is the idolatrous commercial trade route. The sea represents sin and evil and persecution in the book of Revelation. It's not just the book of Revelation. As far back as Isaiah 57, we read, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So when our Lord Jesus Christ returns, the troubled sea, a world of sin and evil and death will be over. That will disappear. Isaiah 65 describes this new heaven and new earth as a place of beauty, of ongoing joy, where there will be no weeping and the tears will be wiped away from our eyes. But even if you go further back to Abraham, Abraham saw this too. You know, he was promised the whole land of Canaan. He spent his life in a tent. And he was okay with that. That's explained in Hebrews 11, verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham knew a better day was coming. And he would be in that holy city whose builder, whose architect, designer, maker is God himself. Now that's described, this city is described in verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I think you all know that in the Old Testament, Jerusalem was Israel's jewel. Not just because it was capital city and David had his palace there, but the temple was there. And God dwelt in that temple. 
And there were sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. Jerusalem was the center of Jewish life. But as you know, because of sin, because of unbelief and rebellion, Jerusalem was destroyed with the Babylonian captivity. God promised that a new, new day was coming for Jerusalem. We read that in Isaiah 62. For Zion's sake, Zion is Jerusalem. For Zion's sake, I will not keep quiet. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. And then we read in verses 4 and 5, For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Jerusalem will burn in brightness. She will be God's delight. She will be married. We'll get back to that, that marriage part in, in just a moment. But we need to understand that when God made that promise in the Old Testament, it was not simply envisioning what would happen in the Old Testament time. Even later on, Paul would write in Galatians 4 about the Jerusalem, the present Jerusalem, who is in slavery with her children, to the Jerusalem above, who is free, and she is our mother. The new Jerusalem will not finally appear until our Lord Jesus Christ returns on the clouds of heaven. And you know what, brothers and sisters? It's not a building. It's so easy because it's kind of described that way here in Revelation 20. New Jerusalem is not a building with walls, with a floor, and so on. The New Jerusalem is a person. The New Jerusalem are people. The New Jerusalem is the church. Believers from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. She's very clearly described here as a bride. The bride to whom Jesus Christ will be married. And the amazing thing is that she becomes Jesus' bride and she becomes so beautiful because of Jesus Christ himself. We read that in Ephesians 5. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. The new Jerusalem is the beautiful, radiant bride of Jesus Christ. And she's made beautiful, she's made bright, she's made righteous because of the blood of Jesus Christ. He got his own bride. He purchased her from a humanity that was in sin and misery and on the road to destruction. He, he seized his people, washed them in his blood and spirit and is going to celebrate the eternal wedding feast of the Lamb with her in the new heaven and the new earth. Here we also understand why Jerusalem is described as coming down out of heaven from God. The challenge with that is some believers won't be in heaven on the last day of the world. I'll be honest with you. I hope that I never go to heaven. And I'm sure a lot of you don't want to go to heaven either. 
because you long to hear the trumpet sound. And Jesus Christ come in a twinkling of an eye. We are transformed perfectly as the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. We won't go to heaven. Heaven will come down to us. But the reason that, that John sees this as, as the Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, what that emphasizes is that the church, that church is formed in heaven by an act of God's will. God sent his son down to redeem sinners, to get the church, to get the bride. This is heaven's work. This is a marriage made in heaven and made for eternity in a new heaven and new earth. The new Jerusalem, that's us, brothers and sisters. It's every believer who is washed in the blood and spirit of Jesus Christ. Very closely related to this is what we read in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Again, this is new in the sense of it's so much better, better than when when Adam and Eve walked occasionally with God in the cool of the garden. Better than God dwelling in the tabernacle and temple where nobody could go in except the high priest once per year. Better than when the Son of God lived here on this earth, but he left and went back to heaven. But in a new heaven and a new earth, God will not leave. He will not disappear. We will see him face to face. And we will be in the presence of God forever. Look at verses 22 and 23. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Adam and Eve walked and talked with God. Moses met God on the mountain and his face shone, slowly it faded away. But in a new heaven and a new earth, we will see God. We will see his glory, glory that lights up our life. Uh, He'll sit on his throne and there's a stream that flows from his throne throughout the earth. The tree of life planted on either side of the stream that we may partake of it whenever and wherever we are. The new Jerusalem is so beautiful because now God is fully Emmanuel, God with us, face to face forever. And now we read that beautiful comfort of verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. No more tears. A lot of tears in our lives, brothers and sisters. You can imagine John's day, people, they couldn't have a job, they couldn't buy and sell. They were chomped to pieces by, by lions. Now, we might not become lion fodder, but we still live in a world where there is disease, where there is violence. Can you imagine being a Christian in Sudan and seeing your your children murdered in front of your eyes? Or in the Ukraine, your, your son gets just old enough to go to the front 
and get blown apart, what misery, what hurt there's in our world. And there is disease, and there's natural disasters, and there's, there's the pain of, of people who will rip you off financially in a heartbeat. And uh, we live in a world that seems to more and more hate God, hate his word, and hate the church. We have seen not too long ago a government that was fully prepared to take away our school, take away funding, take away accreditation simply because we wanted to follow our Christian principles. We live in a world that hates the Christian faith, hates Christians, hates God, but it's all temporary. We are pilgrims making progress as we go through the vanity of vanities on the way to the promised land. Why, brothers and sisters, why, why do we have this beautiful comfort and, and hope? It's not because of anything we earned, but because our God is a God of love and grace. He sent his son into this world to take our sins, our terror, more opposition than anyone could ever dream of, Satan dancing around him in victory because he was sure that he was going to crush the Son of God, but he died so that we are washed clean in the bride of Christ. And that means when he returns in the clouds of heaven, every tear will be wiped away. Sin, death, opposition, violence, hatred, terrorism, razor-sharp fences, it'll all be gone. So we can be pilgrims who hold our heads high, knowing progress is being made to the promised land. Now, as if we've not heard enough, God adds in verse 5, And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So he says to John, get it on paper, or scroll or whatever it was then. Get it down, write it down, because 2,000 years from now, there's going to be people in St. Albert entering 2024. They need to hear this. They need to know what's in store for the children of God. And maybe we say, but it just seems too good to be true. Do you ever have that, that you're saying, can it really be true that God loves me? And he's going to wipe away the tears from our eyes and we're going to be in a new heaven. A new... Is it true? Well, look at what God says. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And what it symbolizes is God has power and authority. And he's in control. He's got all the power. And clearly he loves us. He gave his son to die for us. We can have absolutely no doubt that this is true. And God will fulfill his word. He says it's done. It's a done deal. Count on it. Trust in me. Believe in Jesus Christ. This is your future. This is where you're going. This is what you have. And knowing this and being assured of this should also have a, a huge impact on the way that we live our lives right here and now. When God says, behold, I make all things new, that's not just the future. The newness doesn't start when Jesus Christ returns. 
But when you know him now as your Lord and your Savior, all things are being made new for us now. Eternal life starts now. And Jesus Christ said that in John 17. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that now we believe in Jesus Christ, and life is transformed. And we go from one degree of glory to the next in this world. One degree of glory to the next as more and more we stomp down the opposition of Satan and surrender our lives in love to God and love to our neighbor. That's the only people who will enter a new heaven, a new earth. The last line of our text says, the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable murderers, sexually immoral, will not inherit eternal life, but be thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. Brothers and sisters, what that encourages us is that Jesus Christ has got to be our all in all, that he's everything to us, that he has to be in our arms and we in his. Notice that our our text continues in verse 6, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And that's a quotation of Isaiah 55. Jesus Christ is the living water, and he's free. You don't pay. You can't pay. Take a hold of him, and you'll have the living water, and that'll give you life. And that means, brothers and sisters, it's it's important for each one of us personally to understand and forget about everybody else. Let's spend our own moment, our own time, And ask ourselves the question, who is Jesus Christ and what is Jesus Christ to me? He's my Lord. He's my Savior. He's the living water. And when you have a relationship with him, when you drink deeply from this living water, he works in us by his Holy Spirit also to bear the fruit of the Spirit, that our life becomes filled with love and joy and peace and self-control and mercy to one another. We show that we are the children of God. Indeed, we read here in the next line, the one who conquers will have his heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. That theme of conquering is found throughout the book of Revelation. Paul writes about it as well in Romans when he says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us in Christ Jesus the Lord. We are pilgrims holding our heads up high because we're sons and daughters of the living God. We crush Satan. When he, when he tempts us to, as, as, as our, to, to steal, to engage in sexual immorality, pornography, whatever, Stop it, Satan. Get away from me. I crush you in my Lord Jesus Christ. And then more and more, we, in our families, in our our marriages, in the communion of saints, in our work ethic, that we show we are the children of God who have been washed in the blood and renewed in the spirit of Jesus Christ. 
We are pilgrims. Pilgrims going through the vanity of vanities, and we are making progress. And we certainly see that with our young brother, Tyson, Tyson Versteg. Young brother, pilgrim, we hear that you're a fast-moving pilgrim. You can run like anything, and that's fantastic, man. But our joy this afternoon is seeing that you, too, are professing that you love Jesus Christ. And you want to be on that pilgrimage that goes to a, a new heaven and new earth. Come join us, and may God bless you in your journey. Brothers and sisters, we travel on. Pilgrims we are. And as we travel on, holding on to our Lord Jesus Christ, we long, in the words of a, an old spiritual hymn, longing to see Jordan, to roll over, to enter that new heaven and new earth. Maybe in 2024, we'll hear the trumpet sound and the archangel's call and our Lord Jesus Christ returning on the clouds of heaven to make all things new, to make us new as his bride, shining in righteousness, shining like the stars in heaven. Amen.